Hi, I'm Mark Haywood, and this is Behind the Spine, a podcast which finds learning opportunities for writers in the most unlikely of places. Old women are so much more than this, so much more. They are still complete human beings. There's a pandemic of loneliness among our older generations. In modern society, it seems we've given up caring about those who came before us. There's a pervading narrative that older people just aren't interesting, and many see it as a chore to visit elderly relatives. This couldn't be further from the truth, and it's time to flip that narrative. You could visit a care home and see a room full of old people and think they were perhaps less than they once were. Or you could see numerous lives that have been lived to the fullest, a room full of people with experiences that go beyond anything you could imagine. All you need to do is ask the right questions, and you'll understand this firsthand. In her debut book, Cat Brushing, Jane Campbell illuminates this fact beautifully. Jane is 80, and through a collection of short stories, she details the lives of the oft-neglected older woman. I am delighted to say she's my guest today. Chapter 1. For My Own Mother If you hold this view of older women that I've outlined, this book may come as a shock. It shouldn't, but it might. The stories of these 13 unforgettable characters explore the sensual worlds of older women in a range of fierce and vivid narratives. As Jane has published her first book at the age of 80, that's likely to become a focus for many people, and I understand that. But for me, the focus should be on the stories themselves, so I don't want to hang on Jane's age for too long. I think that does her a disservice. But I do feel we should start there, since it's her lived experience that punctuates these stories and has led her to this moment of publication. I do just want to say that I actually think um, I'm probably just a late developer. I could have written these stories at any stage of my life, but I couldn't have written them about old women because I wasn't within the camp. I had to be inside in order to truly write about what it was like. Before I did all this, I I was born during the war. I grew up in Central Africa, where my father was a doctor on a copper mine. I was educated in boarding school in Cape Town. Then I took the Oxford entrance exam and came over to St. Hughes in Oxford and read English. And of course, uh, that confirmed me as a writer, an awful lot of people follow that path. However, I then got married. I went to live in Bermuda with my lovely husband. I had four children. Didn't like living in Bermuda then, got divorced and came back to England, did a second degree in social science, which introduced me to the idea that, and this is going to sound cynical, but it really isn't, is that you could have a a job listening to people talk about their lives. And um, it's a very curious relationship between analyst and patient because there's a lot of love involved, but at the same time, love is never enough. Of course, of course, it's not enough. So there's a degree of rigor as well. And that uh, fascinated me. I, I did it quite well. I became a co-director of a training in group analysis, which led to a degree from Oxford Brookes University. And then I sort of retired. I still have a very, very small private practice, a few supervisees. However, I had also, alongside this life, always written. I'd always written because I couldn't help it. I wrote as naturally as I breathe. And one day, 
when I was about 76 or 77, I was on holiday in Bermuda. My four children came with me to England, but gradually as adults, they drifted back. So I went to Bermuda often, four or five times a year before COVID. And I was staying with my eldest son, Nicholas, and his wife. His wife, Jen, was away. He was at work. I was in the kitchen and I uh, was brushing. He had two Siamese cats, only one liked being brushed. Lucy, I brushed Lucy. And on the dresser was a picture of some very, very old, gnarled, an autistic picture of old, gnarled hands knitting. And this was my daughter-in-law's grandmother. And somehow into my head came this old housebound woman whose only companion is the cat, who fears for her future, who sees that she has been dispossessed of all her former qualities. She's not treated badly, but she's just treated as old women are. Nobody really wants to know what's going on in their heads. And she fears for her future, fears for the cat, the young wife, the new young wife is going to is pregnant, is going to have a baby. She says things about allergies and so on. She takes the old woman to the doctor for a humiliating examination. And somehow this old woman emerged in my head and I wrote the story and sent it to the London Review of Books, which I think is the best journal in the world. And they published it. And that was the beginning. The London Review of Books has always struck me as a publication that I really need to bring my A game too. It's not the sort of thing that you can read idly whilst doing something else. It is a very in-depth, high quality analysis yes. of what is going on in the publishing. So if that was your first, that was your first foray was the London Review of Books. Yes, because, well, you must realise I'm an addict of the London Review of Books. I almost always have one folded in my handbag. Uh, when I used to fly to Bermuda often, it's a journey of seven and a half hours, I'd stockpile a few and open them in the first hour. They also don't publish fiction. But I just had a feeling about this story, full of hubris, of course. But it, 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 actually, they did. The, the wonderful people, wonderful Mary Kay Wilmer and Alice Balls uh, decided, I think, to publish it. And and that was it. And, and then um, Alice introduced me to my agent, wonderful agent, Eleanor Byrne, and she said, uh, I think you should write more stories about old women, Jane. You seem to have, I don't know, you seem to be able to tune into something. So I did. You talked earlier about needing to be inside the camp, presumably to feel that you had the authenticity to talk about these women who have reached an age. I wanted to share, yes. in my copy, right at the very beginning, there is a dedication which I know we've discussed this, and I do hope it makes itself into makes its way into the the published version. But my copy says the dedication reads, "For my own mother, whose story was never told." There is a real sense that I get that readers of this book will recognise themselves in a manner that they haven't necessarily seen portrayed before. I think that is critical, no matter who you're writing about. But you're now in the camp to use your phrase, how important is it to you to give women like your own mother a voice that they had never previously had? The book is actually quite consciously a gift to my mother. Um, I loved her very much. She taught me to read. I'm not going to say more about her other than she was a, a very talented woman and I think all her life unhappy. And I, I you know, would that I could have changed that. But the book is a gift to her. And 
what I wanted to do really was to disrupt what I see as the prevailing stereotypes about old women. One is the kind of cute one, and without wanting to diminish any any anybody else's writing, it's the kind of wear a purple hat and, you know, just uh, sort of be different. And the other one is just sort of dull and boring. It's like you wear an apron and spend your life making cakes and you're obsessed with grandchildren and cats. Both of these stereotypes are true and they're really good. I mean, I don't want to devalue them at all. But what I did want to say was old women are so much more than this, so much more. They are still complete human beings. I know they're old. NHS puts us at the age 65 into geriatric medicine. I know, you know, the language changes. She had a fall. She's remarkably alert for her age. But actually, we're all still total human beings. We, you don't become subhuman because you pass some age limit. And, and that was, insofar as I had an ideological purpose, that was it. Behind the Spine is an attempt to inspire you to write and to shine a light on things that might provide a creative spark for your stories. Now, for the second time, we want to go one stage further. We want to offer you an outlet for your work. Our writing competition is back. In Series 3, we set you a writing challenge based on the lessons we've uncovered on this show. We broadcast the two winning entries at the midpoint of Series 4. This time, we're setting you a new challenge. Over Series 4 and Series 5, we've followed the preparation of adventure athlete Kaz Lander as she and her partner prepared to row unsupported around the coast of Great Britain. Remind yourself of what that challenge might feel like by listening to the two episodes in Series 4 and the bonus episode in Series 5. Then, in no more than a thousand words, try to bring that challenge to life. Two characters, one ocean rowing boat, and the vast coastline of Great Britain. With that backdrop and your own imagination, feel free to go wild. At the end of the series, we'll pick a winner. We'll pay one writer £250 for the right to use their story as part of Series 6, and we'll also donate the same amount to Kaz's chosen cause, the Royal Marsden Cancer Charity. But now, back to the show. Chapter 2 cleansed for death. I mentioned earlier the experience of speaking to older people in care homes and how those conversations can reshape the narrative in your mind. Well, I experienced this many times firsthand. My grandmother worked in a care home and I had the amazing and unique opportunity when I was younger to sit with these people and they would tell me the most incredible stories of their lives. Jane has injected a sense of authenticity in these characters that very few writers do when it comes to older people. Many will focus on the purple hats, the gnarled hands, the knitting needles. But these short stories reveal the remarkable lived experiences of these women, of the lovers they have enjoyed, and we see them across all of their lives. Not just as they are in the present, they are an absolute riot. I think that um, my previous career as a group analyst did play a part in that every old woman, and to be truthful, I, d I mean, I've given you the perhaps the ideology about them, but that was retrospective. When I wrote these stories, quite angry really, it was the way that old women, as I saw it, um, were seen and treated. They just turned up in my head, but for me, they always had a massive backstory. 
And I was thinking yesterday, in anticipation of this interview, I think that almost all the old women actually have relationships with their younger selves. There is quite a conscious sense of looking back to the way they once were and cherishing that or sometimes regretting it, but recognizing that that younger self is around and and is very important. And if I can give you a very graphic example, I think uh, Susan and Miffy, uh, which is the first story in the book, when Susan sees Miffy changing a light bulb and sees the movements of her very young body and her beautiful, unmarked, unwrinkled, syrupy skin, I think she looks at her and she says, so that is youth. And the most sophisticated reading of that story is that actually Susan falls in love with her young self. She realizes how utterly beautiful she was. And there is, of course, the regret about the life she subsequently had. It, it, was, um, it was a successful life, but it was a completely unfulfilled life. And then uh, Miffy then represents her young self, and there is the interaction. And Miffy introduces her to degrees of sensuality that she never knew because she didn't know how beautiful she once was. So I think you're, you very perceptively spotted something that I'm glad is there. It's about an old women looking back on their young selves. In his latest Netflix show, which you don't need to have seen to, to appreciate the sentiment. Ricky Gervais talks about being told off by his doctor for, you know, drinking and eating too much. And, and he's told, you know, if you do the following things, then you could, you could have 10 more years. And Ricky Gervais makes this joke out of the point that, well, I don't want the 10 more years if that's 80 to 90 or 90 to 100. If I could have 20 to 30 again, that would be great, but you're not offering me that. So I think there is huge truth in what you're saying. You do look back with great fondness. Potentially there is some grief there as well for a, a, a life that didn't quite stay in the 20 to 30 something, not that it ever could, but you do look back, don't you? I find myself doing it, you know, and I'm, I'm, I'm approaching the age of, of, of 50, but for these women, <laughs> the story that comes out, I mean, Susan and Miffy is, is, it's a fabulous opener for this. And it is very honest, very tender, very sexual. And also what I found most interesting was the shock and horror of other people on the receiving end of the notion that these two people could have some kind of physical connection, even though they are separated by decades of age. There is a great imposition, isn't there, of society onto people like the, the types of people that you're writing about. We like to see them as they are now, not as they were back then. Is that right? Yes. However, however, it's very important, I stress, I don't think old people crave to be young again. It's not that they want to go back there, because back there had all kinds of pressures and and so on. It's not that they want, I mean, frankly, uh, I have to speak for myself here. I'm grateful that I'm I'm not young now. It's not like that. It's simply, and I say this as a group analyst, every one of us has an unlived life. There's always an unlived life. And it's quite important, I think, in the course of one's maturity to recognize what that unlived life might have been. So all I wanted to do was to introduce into Susan's consciousness the unlived life, the life she didn't have, the, the sensual, young, beautiful life. Miffy, of course, is motivated entirely by a vast compassion. 
what a wonderful young woman she is. So she manages to tune in to what Susan is wanting. But it's not that Susan, you know, it's not about wanting to be young again. It's important I say that. Absolutely. May I quote a line, um, which is my favourite line in, in the entire publication to you? And it comes in the story, Lamia. And I just wanted to read it to you because for me, it, it's not just truly wonderful. For me, this is perhaps the entire collection of short stories in a single two-sentence phrase. Made it before she died. Made it in time to die she corrected herself. That made me just so happy as both a reader and a writer and a human being, I think, because for me, that's what I was holding in my hands and what I continued to hold in my hands throughout this entire process of reading about these women. This is, in a way, everything is is a preparation for for the end of life. You know, there is a real sense of getting ready for that. And this just really made me, yeah, this really made me think that this is what this entire project had been about. (laughs) Well, Lamia is a, is a very specific instance, actually. All my heroines, as I think of them, inhabit that area between preparing for death, I guess, um, in the run up to death. And we're all closer to that, far closer than we are to the beginning of our lives. But the thing about Lamia is that if I use her as an example, of this line. I think that the issue about in time to die, I'm not quite sure where the phrase came. It actually came out of my subconscious. But when I thought about it, I remembered I'd once written a story about an old witch, it's lying in a bottom drawer somewhere, who was cleansed for death. And it was something about um, being washed and cleaned and cleansed and prepared to die in a way that was very peaceful and very uh, very welcome to her. It was arduous, but she needed to cleanse herself in order to die. And Lamia, the reason this applies so much to Lamia, or Linda, as she really is, is that she has to go back to find Malik. She had once had these three, five, I don't know how long they were, magical days with him, where she discovered aspects of herself sexually, emotionally, psychologically, that she didn't know existed. It left a mark on her. She went back to her ordinary, stereotypical life. She was good. She looked after her husband. She looked after her children. She led her life, an ordinary, successful life. But Malik was always there. And so she came back to find him. She had to do that. And in the dream, the dream was that he would remember her and he would love her as he once apparently loved her and they would move into the future together. Of course, he barely remembers her. He's charming and polite, but she means nothing to him. And so now she is cleansed for death. She's done it, and so it's in time to die. And I won't say what the end of the story is, but she's now prepared. Chapter 3. Lockdown Phantasms All of the stories in Cat Brushing are superb, but my favourite is Lockdown Phantasms. Here's my synopsis. It's week 193 of the long lockdown. Shortly into the start of the lockdown, the government introduced a compulsory purchase order for property owned by the over 70s. You can choose to live with your kids if you have them, or if you don't, you can live alone. 
If you choose to live alone, you'll move to a state-built apartment block, all part of some bizarre government plan to ease the shielding process. In return, and providing you grant the government access to your memory bank, then once a week you're sent a fantasy created from your memories. This phantasm could lead to sexual activity or the briefest of fleeting encounters. It reads literally like an episode of Black Mirror. Jane has gone somewhere I don't think even George Orwell would go. As a story written during our lockdown, its range and ambition is incredible. It was when our lock, the lockdowns kept being extended and I was thinking to myself, um, I'm, I'm long past this, uh, this sort of concern, but for people who are having love affairs, and I know about love affairs, so I spot them wherever they are, lockdown must have been an absolute nightmare because, of course, you know, how do you meet? And also the dreadful moral complications of perhaps bringing a germ into the house. Of course, that was around with AIDS as well and so on and so forth. But it seemed to me very dramatic. And, and the story just, just sort of came out. I mean, I do love my government department thing. You know, you go on once you're over 70. I, I do think that it had NHS bureaucracy to a T. And I hope there's humor in it as well. And one of the things that I smiled at as I was writing it was the fact that the government chose to make equivalent a hug from a child and a few hours in bed with a lover. And I thought only, <laughs> only the NHS could say that this is skin-to-skin contact and so they're the same. I mean, I hope people found that amusing. I, I found it, it tickled me pink when I wrote it. Oh, it made me gasp. It's, uh, it's an incredible achievement. They, they all are, but that in particular made me think deeply about the, the world that we live in. And you're presenting a view of the world that actually maybe 10 years ago, you might have said, oh, that's, that, that would never happen. That would never happen. Now, you could tell me anything and it wouldn't surprise me if it did, if it did happen, particularly with the government that we have at the, at the moment. I just wanted to just give you another reflection, if, if I may, about the stories. They are, for me, uh, and this is really interesting to hear you talk about your previous life and your professional career working with your patients. To me, the stories are they are part fiction, but they are well, they are fiction, but they're part fiction. They're also part exploration of of psyche and of and of self and of memory. And pretty much all of the stories did make me think both about the character and myself. Either what would I have done in that position, which I think is at the essence of great storytelling, because we love characters who make decisions that we disagree with as readers and as and as an audience member. Oh, yes. But it also made me think about the choices that I'd made in my life and the relationships that I have and had with people and, and what I've observed people doing. Is that something that you can recognize? Have other people said that that to you? Because a lot of times, you know, you read something and you think that was very interesting. I really enjoyed the characters. But this had a very, very deep and profound impact on me. I wonder whether that is because of your previous lived experience and your understanding of what people do and have the capacity to do. Well, um, that's a really interesting question. And I haven't asked myself that. But what does come to mind is somebody said to me recently, of course, there are some dislikable characters. And I thought, oh, really? I mean, I think they're all wonderful. Not because they're meant to be wonderful. It's just because I happen to love them. 
And um, I think she was thinking about kindness, where this woman takes takes on a wife beater and a, a horrible man. He happens to be a surgeon. He's obviously an enormous alpha male. And um, I, I don't know how much of the story to... Anyway, she, she takes him on and effectively she kills him. It is, of course, based on the story by Guy de Maupassant, Une Vendetta. So it has a prestigious origin, but this is her own particular little English version of that. I, I really admire the woman because she she operates within the world as, as she can. She's old, she's single, but she's fierce and she protects the unprotected. She doesn't even like his wife very much. She describes her as small, fat and stupid, and maybe that says something about her as well. But she sees that she's being bullied and she can't stand bullying. And so she takes the surgeon on and um, and that's it. So I, I love that woman. She doesn't have a name, actually. To be honest, I think she probably is a witch. I do think there are several witches in my story and I use the term very, very loosely. But these are women who use their sexuality and their charisma to, um, to do good, as I see it. But they, they're very powerful. We're recording this in advance of publication, but this episode will air the day before the short stories are released in July. We're on the cusp of publication and you've lived with these stories for several years on your own. It's now about to find its way out into the world, just as Cat Brushing did back with the London Review of Books publication. How do you feel knowing that very, very soon people, not just me reading an advanced copy so that I can talk to you about it, but people out in the world will be able to hold this in your hands? I won't put words into your mouth, but how does that make you feel, Jane? This is very, I mean, the collection was only sold last summer. Uh, so it was only finished about 15 months ago. So um, I, I guess you might be asking me, am, am I apprehensive? The thing that I've always found very difficult in life is when I'm misunderstood, because I always think I've explained something beautifully, and then I get awfully, um, I find it awfully difficult if people don't understand so I told myself I have to be prepared for all kinds of misreadings of these stories and so on. But basically, I'm really pleased. I'm hoping it strikes a blow for old women everywhere. I want to add that years ago, I mean, middle of last century, Simone de Beauvoir described old women, uh, described women as being othered by men. You know, they're othered by by a male world, a patriarchy. And I want to say that old women are doubly othered. They're othered because they're women and then they're othered because they're old. And if this book does anything to change perceptions of old women, I will be extremely gratified. I have absolutely no doubt that it will. Cat Brushing is a phenomenal achievement, 13 stories about incredible female characters that we rarely see. I salute you, Jane. It's been an absolute pleasure. Thank you very much. I've enjoyed it so much, Mark. Thank you very, very much. Conclusion, a massive thank you then to Jane Campbell for today's episode. And to recap, what have we learnt? Don't allow the older people of your stories to fall into a backdrop. Don't riddle their personalities with cliches and stereotypes. Understand that older people are still complete humans with fascinating stories to tell. 
And on that note, if you feel part of a disenfranchised or othered group of people, if you feel the pervading narrative about you and those like you is wrong, then write. Flip the narrative and use your skills to tell the true story. Every one of us has an unlived life, even your characters. Think about the ways in which the life that didn't pan out for them impacts their present day. And finally, no matter what you think and feel about your characters, remember that your readers will conjure up their own ideas. A vast array of different emotions will be felt, and they won't always align with yours. And that's okay. Thanks for listening. I'm Mark Haywood. Get in touch with me directly at info at behindthespine.co.uk. We'd love to hear from you. We're also on Twitter and Facebook as at Behind the Spine and Instagram as at Behind the Spine Podcast. Check out the show notes for additional information and a full transcript of this episode. Additionally, sign up to the email newsletter for updates about our new exclusive live and in-person residency at the Groucho Club in London. These events are not recorded and not repeated and are designed to put you, the audience, both behind the spine and in the room. If you'd like to go on the guest list, please drop us a line. Goodbye for now. Stay safe and keep writing. This podcast is produced by OG Podcasts. Find out more at ogpodcasts.co.uk. 